If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to, uh, not Genesis this morning, we're going to turn to Matthew, supposed to be Matthew 5, but we're going to start in Matthew 4. So turn to Matthew 4 this morning with me. We're going to be spending most of our time over the next couple of months in, in Matthew 5, but we really want to start there in Matthew 4 to kind of set the to set the scene for what we're doing here in this in this sermon of Jesus. This sermon is called uh, typically called the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we're going to be focusing specifically on uh, those first twelve verses, what are called the uh, the Beatitudes. And we really just want to we need to see where this sermon's coming from. I, I guess that's that's the heart in turn to Matthew four. We need to see where where Jesus is coming from, what, where this is in his ministry, because I think it really does. It really sets a tone uh, and helps us to see his, his focus, his priority in this. So if you would, stand with me uh, together as, as we look at God's word this morning. We'll start there in, in Matthew 4, uh, verse 23. That's where we're going to pick it up. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up, on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, come now and give us the grace to hear your voice. Uh, I pray that you would. <laughs> I pray that you would move me out of the way. And, and Lord, I've been so distracted this morning. It's it's like it's like nothing in my head is clear. And so I pray that what you do this morning would <laughs> would be bigger than that. Would be bigger than me. Would be bigger than any of us. But that you would speak to us through your Word, and that you'd give us ears to hear you, give us eyes to see you. Open our hearts this morning to, to know you more. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the, uh, one of the things we hear a, uh, a lot about today, uh, and, and maybe this has always been the case. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, mean, I, haven't, like, I haven't been around long enough to say, oh, it's always been this way. I, but we hear a lot today about, uh, about building a culture. You familiar with that? Like, we got to build a culture here. That's, that's really become sort of a buzzword in, in business and, and in sports and even in, even in the church. In fact, when I Googled this week uh, the, the two words culture building, it returned uh, 
almost 3 billion hits in, in under a second, in like 0.86 seconds or something like that. 3 billion references on the internet to culture building. Um, it's the modern way of saying, you know, this is who we are. This is what we're about. This is what it looks like to be a part of this story that we're telling. And this touches on something. It really does. That's why it's so popular. It touches on something deeply, deeply important to the soul of humanity, right? Our, our idea of belonging, that, that deepest longing of our hearts to, to be part of something that we believe in, something that's transcendent, something beyond just us in, in this moment. It's part of that deepest longing of our hearts, something that connects to that desire that we have, like to be welcomed, to be to be brought in, to be known, to belong. And, and so executives, right, in, in business, they're constantly talking about culture. Coaches, coaches are constantly, it's, it's always something about building a culture and pastors, bless our hearts, we're just, we're like trying to keep up, right? In Matthew 5, Jesus is giving us this very vivid and dynamic picture of what it looks like to be not just part of an organization, and not just part of a movement, like not, not just part of a group that comes together, not just part of a group that, that goes out. That's, that's oftentimes what we think of when we, church, when we think of the church, but that's not what, he's, not what he's doing here. He's giving us this very detailed picture, like this foundational picture of what it means to belong to him. That's what the Beatitudes are about. They are a picture for us of what it looks like to belong to Jesus. And so if we if we were to say here at the beginning of this series in Matthew 5, what Jesus is doing is he's offering his people a glimpse of what it looks like to be his people. He's telling his people, this is what it looks like to be my people. He's saying, here is the true culture of the Christian. And we saw the setup for it there in Matthew 4, where he was, if you remember that, I started there in Matthew 4, where he was doing what? He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And look what's happening. Look at verse uh, uh, 424. Look at there. It says, so his fame, right? So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they were, so, so here's what's happening. People are just flocking to him. Like we love famous people. Even those who, who like, want to pretend like we don't, we love, we're in, we are astounded by fame. We want fame. That's one of the biggest things that people are chasing after in the world today. It's, it's, why, it's why the whole category of like a social media influencer exists, right? That if I wear these boots, I'm sorry, I'm picking on my wife's social media profile right now because she was showing me this the other day. That if I wear these boots with this sweater and these pants, you too can have thousands and thousands of people who follow you and companies will now pay you to wear their clothes so that you can be an influencer. This is the whole idea. We are chasing fame. Well, Jesus had fame and he wasn't looking for it. They're there just surrounding him constantly. People looking for a cure. People looking for an answer. People looking for meaning and purpose and, and direction. And, and, and they're just following him wherever 
he goes, right? Do you see that from Galilee and the Decapolis? Like the, the, the Decapolis is 10 small cities. So that's like he's following us from Forest Acres and from Chapin and Leesville and Lexington and Irmo and Columbia. This is people coming from all over the different little areas. They're coming to him and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So not only are they coming from here, they're coming from out there. They're coming to follow after this guy and they are loving them some Jesus, right? Like they are about it, right? The carpenter's son from Nazareth is killing it. And this is like day one in his ministry, right? If you know, we're in, we're in Matthew 5. Matthew 1 is nothing but a list of names showing where the guy came from. Then he's born. Then John the Baptist prepares the way. And four, he's tempted. This is the very beginning of his entire ministry. And already people are seeking after him. Like Jimmy Fallon's trying to get this guy on his show, right? Madison Square Garden wants him to come and play the headline of show. By, by any measurable standard here on earth, Jesus is winning. He's accomplishing what almost all of us are seeking after. He's got this thing headed in the right direction. People are happy with him. People are loving what he's doing. His social media team is on top of it all, just killing it. People who used to be blind, they're able to see people who couldn't used to walk around. Now they're able to run after him from town to town. And his fame is spreading throughout the world. All he has to do, if you want to be pragmatic as you're coaching Jesus right now, you say, all you've got to do is just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep giving the people what they want. Heal those diseases. Feed them when they are hungry. Comfort them when they're upset. But look at verse 1. All right, now we're in Matthew 5. Look at verse 1. It says, seeing the crowd. So first off, he's aware. All right, Jesus isn't just aloof. He's not like some sort of monk just sort of walking around. He knows the crowd is there with him. And here's what he did. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so now we know, here's what we know right out of the gate. This is really critical that we understand this. We know that the way of Jesus is not the way of the world. Because the world would never for a second say something like that. This is as countercultural of a statement as you could make both in his day and in ours that the poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed. That's why C.S. Lewis would, would say that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord because it's because he said things like that. But if we understand ourselves at all, it's pretty clear why Jesus begins, begins like that here in verse 3 with blessed are the poor in spirit. It's because being poor in spirit is not a natural human condition. And the order of the words here is important. I, I want to pull on that thread for just a second. You see, Jesus didn't say, blessed are the spiritually poor. Did, did you notice that? He did not say, blessed are the spiritually poor. And I'm not, I'm not pretending to be a Greek scholar or anything, but if you go and do, if you, if you can and go read your Greek Bible, you'll find that the order of the words here is very specific. He didn't say, blessed are the spiritually poor. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so there's a difference in that. Jesus is intentional in that. You see, spiritual poverty, being spiritually poor, has been the condition of every man 
since the fall of Adam and sin in Genesis 3. We are born spiritually poor. That's how we come from the factory, right? We're all spiritually poor. That's the, that's, the fa- that's the fallen factory setting of every man, woman, and child who walks the earth. But Jesus didn't come into the world to bond with the spiritually poor. Like sometimes we, we treat him like that. Like Jesus came to just meet us where we are and allow us to stay where we are. And, and Jesus is going to be with us where we are. That's sort, of a, that's sort of a half view of what Jesus came to do. He did come to meet us where we are, but he did not come to leave us where we are. Right? He came to seek and to save the lost. And that's what it means to be spiritually poor. To be spiritually poor is to be lost, is to be in need. And so what we need to know, what we need to know is that to be poor in spirit started, all those who who are poor in spirit started out as spiritually poor. But something's changed. Some of our women have been working uh, through Revelation together on Tuesday nights. Yes, that was a bold move here at the beginning of 2021. And in Revelation 3, Jesus expresses this where he says to this lukewarm church in Laodicea, right? Some of y'all will remember that. Y'all are lukewarm. You're neither hot, you're neither cold because you're lukewarm. He says what? I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It's like the most graphic thing Jesus ever says. He literally says, I'm going to spit you. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And here's why he says it. He says, for you say, so talking to the church, he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's what the church says. We need to keep that in mind that Jesus is talking to the church here right now, talking to the church. He's, he's talking to people like you. He's talking to people like me. He's talking to people who have their Bibles with them. He's talking to people who go to worship on Sunday mornings. If not, they certainly live stream it in. They probably uh, uh, take notes in the margins. They highlight and underline important verses. They've got their kids with their little notebooks going, yeah, yeah write that down, write that down. This is important. They, they probably volunteer in the nursery once a month right? These are church people he's talking to. This isn't people out there. This is people in here is who he's saying this to. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. We need to be careful about thinking that the problems of the world aren't our problems too. Remember in Matthew 5, Jesus isn't standing on the street corner. Who's he talking to? It says his disciples came to him. He began to teach his disciples. He's teaching people who are following him. And so there's this reality on display throughout his ministry that proximity to Jesus doesn't equal union with Jesus, right? It's more than just being in the room where it happens. Plenty of Pharisees and religious folks learn that the hard way. Tim Chester has pointed out that Jesus comes crashing into the Pharisees' world of self-reliance pride, superiority, hypocrisy, and self-justification with his utterly subversive message of God's grace. That's a big sentence. Here's what it's saying. He comes to those who, who think they don't need anything. That's who Jesus comes to. He comes to the people who think they have it all together. And that's the first grace that he offers to us is opening our eyes to understand our need for grace. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Here's what he says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and naked. Charles Spurgeon said, naked, poor, and miserable is a fair summary of man's condition by nature. 
that naked, poor, and miserable is a fair summary of man's condition by nature. Okay, so, so what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5 now, surrounded by a crowd of what are his biggest fans, is he's making it clear that our natural condition isn't what endears us to God. You know, our natural condition, that position, that, that condition of spiritual poverty is what makes our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone necessary. That's why Jesus begins with this first characteristic of his people. Remember, this is where he starts. This isn't late in the ministry. This is day one. It's because it's the essential piece that makes our trust in Christ. Not just a partnership, Right? but a complete and utter dependency on him. It's important that you know Jesus isn't on your team. Jesus is your only hope. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller makes the point that if you want God's grace, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. This is the first taste of the grace of God in our lives. It's the grace of understanding that we need His grace. Well, that takes the work of the Spirit, and that brings us to, to this reality, is that the poor in spirit understand their need for grace. The poor in spirit understand their need for grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls being poor in spirit the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all other characteristics are, in a sense, a result of this one. It's recognizing that Romans 3.23 truth, right? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that all includes me and that all includes you. That's what the law of God reveals to us. We just sang it, by the way, in that Psalm 119. We just sang that the precepts of God reveal us. It's why the world is so against any fundamental universal truth. It's because they see it only as a restriction. That's our natural tendency is to understand God's law as nothing but a restriction, nothing but him holding us back. And there certainly is that element to it, right? They see it as a hindrance, but the poor in spirit understand the law not only as a restriction, but as a mirror. The law of God shows us, it reveals to us as we see ourselves in the face of God's law. It's like a mirror and we see, we see the hairline receding. We see the eyes starting to look more tired. We see the face looking a little more worn out, right? We see it like we see in a mirror. The law of God shows us, reveals to us the shackles of sin and brokenness that are holding us back, that are holding us in captivity, that have imprisoned us. And it's a grace to understand that. It's painful, but it's a beautiful, painful grace to understand that. It's a grace to be given eyes to see. It's a grace to be given ears to hear. And the law of God has the power to reveal that to us so that we can understand our spiritual poverty and understand our need for saving. And so here's the other thing we need to see today. If the first is that being poor in spirit is different than just being spiritually poor, the second thing is that to be poor in spirit is to understand our spiritual bankruptcy before God. You see, the self-righteous have no need for a Savior. The self-righteous have no need of anything. By the way, that's, that's what Jesus said in, in Mark 2, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick 
Now, those who are well don't need, a, don't need to go to a doctor. We got some doctors in here, right? When people who are well come to you, 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 you what? You tell them you're good. And charge them, right? Obviously, for coming in. Thanks for coming to see me. Easiest patient of the day. You're great, right? Uh, see the receptionist on the way out. She'll take, you, take care of your insurance stuff, right? Yeah, it, the sick are the ones who need a doctor. The sick are the ones who need a physician. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. Jesus didn't come for the people who got it all together. And that makes it easy because nobody does. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. That's why talk of a savior is so foreign today because we don't think we're sinners. We think we're healthy. It's this entitlement mindset, right? This spiritual entitlement mindset that says we are just inherently deserving of special privileges. We're deserving of special treatment because we are, and I know you don't say this out loud. Maybe some of you do, and we can challenge you on that later. But we don't say this out loud. We say it in our hearts because we are awesome. That I am great. And if I'm not great, I'm at least better than somebody and everybody's got their person they point to. At least I'm not like that guy. This has always been the anthem of fallen man. Writing in, uh, in 1960, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, the whole principle on which life is run at the present time. So remember that, 1960. 1960s when he's saying this. That the whole principle on which life is run at the present time is express yourself Believe in yourself and realize the powers that are innate in yourself and let the whole world see and know them. That sound familiar? By the way, I'm not talking about what does it sound like on the news. I'm talking about what does it sound like when my own heart starts to speak up. Express yourself. Believe in yourself. Realize the powers that are innate in yourself and let the whole world See and know them. It's that life is, let me summarize that, it's that life is actually about me. It's about my self-confidence. It's about my self-assurance. It's about my self-reliance. So being poor in spirit is as absolutely contrary to the identity cry of the world today as we could ever find. Because the poor in spirit realize that we don't bring anything we don't bring anything to the table of our salvation other than the sin that requires our salvation. That's all we carry with us. That's why John Gerstner once said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. That's a hard sentence. That's why so many around us are so furious with God because we feel like we're doing our part and He's not doing His. I'm working hard. I'm trying to be a good dad, trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good mom, trying to be a good wife, trying to be, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Why isn't my life perfect? You see where this frustration comes from. I'm doing my part, God. Why won't you step up? It's that entitled Pharisee springing up and telling us that we are good enough, that we are smart enough, that we are pretty enough. But Jesus crashes into that party and Matthew 5, 3, when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So listen, it's not, it's not about the family that you were born into. It's not about how well-liked you are in the community. And said, God wants nothing from us except our needs. 
And these are him with room to display his bounty when he supplies them freely. It's understanding what we don't have in us that is the first gift of God's grace. Okay, so it's not about what you do for a living. Or how many, how many so-called good deeds that you have managed to, managed to muster to load up on the scale in your favor. D.A. Carson says, you are blessed when you see you're just a beggar coming to the door of the kingdom without anything to give to get you in. You see, this is the reality of the upside-down kingdom of God, where the last will be first and the first will be last. And listen, that is the most ridiculous thing that Jesus could say unless it's true. That the first will be last and the last will be first is the most absolutely astoundingly ridiculous thing Jesus could say unless it's true. If what Jesus just said right there in Matthew 5, 3 is true, then it changes everything. Seriously, for those who think the Bible is out of date, for those who think that the Bible is out of touch, just look at what Jesus says here because it's the most subversive message that has ever been preached. And then Jesus backs it up. You know, you realize this, right? In Matthew, 5, in Matthew 20, sorry, he says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to what? To serve. Even the son of man, talking about himself, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, that's the gospel message right there. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't just say it. He didn't just say it. This is critical. Jesus didn't just say the gospel message. Jesus is the gospel message, right? He is the good news. His sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead are the gospel message. And as those who have received it, now here's for us, because I want to I talk to the room for just a second. If you're visiting with us and you, don't, and, and you don't know the Lord yet, I would love to talk with you about that. But right now we're going at the people who claim the name of Christ presently, okay? So if you say, I'm a Christian, I want to press in on you a little bit more. If you don't claim the name of Christ for right now, you can just kind of look at people and go, yeah, you need to get your heart right, okay? You're off the hook for just a minute, because this is for those who claim the name of Christ. As those who have received it, right? As those who have had our eyes opened to understand our need, to understand our desperation, to understand our poverty, and having seen the hope of Jesus and the riches in Christ for us, now we're liberated from the shackles of this world to practice the way of Jesus in this world. Now we can be quick, all right, here's, here's the deal. Now you and I, we can be quick to forgive because we know our own need for forgiveness. Now we can be quick to show grace because we know the grace that we have received. Now we can be quick to show mercy because we have received mercy. Now we can walk in love. Now we can genuinely, truly practice the way of Jesus because we've received the unconditional love of Jesus. So it's not, it's not about what you do. It's about who you are in him. This is what it looks like to belong to this countercultural minority that is the people of God. This is the subversive Jesus 
culture that we've been called into. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. This is what it means to belong to him, what it means to be his. This is what it looks like. Listen, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is the first step. You say, I don't want to be poor in spirit. Then we have a problem because this is step one. This isn't the fine print at the back. Right? This isn't an appendix in the ministry of Jesus. This is the cover page. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize their need for a Savior. Blessed are those who realize their need for grace. Blessed are those who know they have received mercy. Blessed are those who know they need forgiveness and know that everybody else around them shares in that. This is where it all begins. This isn't the final dance. This is the start. As we go through the rest of these Beatitudes, it all builds off of this. Jesus is very intentional with this. He's saying this is where it starts. This is where pride goes to die. Right at the foot of the cross as we look up at our Savior who gave his life for me, who gave his life for you. This is just the beginning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I confess that when I read blessed are the poor in spirit, I, my first instinct is to want that for everybody else and not for me. <laughs> yes, Lord, it would be great if the people around me were poor in spirit, if they were humble, if they knew their weaknesses. It would be great if, the, if my kids and my family knew their need for help. Lord, help us to recognize in our own lives our own need for you. Help us never to get numb to that, to that forgiveness that you have offered us in Christ, for that sacrifice that he has given for us. Forgive us for the days that we take our eyes off of him. Help us to walk today in the pathway of Christ. Help us to live in him. I pray that in Jesus' name.